When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Chat and Berlin with Claire Ridgway. So to conclude my series on Anne Boleyn, which finished with my magnum opus last week, I wanted to get someone on the podcast who really got Anne Boleyn. And luckily, the first person on my list who I contacted agreed to come on the show. Claire Ridgway is a writer, blogger and all-around Tudor fanatic from my homeland of England, but now applies her trade in sunny Spain. In 2009, she started one of my favourite history websites on the whole World Wide Web, The Anne Boleyn Files, a fantastic repository of her research and fascination with England's most controversial queen. On there, you can find articles in every aspect of her life. On there, you can find articles in every aspect of Anne Boleyn's life, as well as book reviews, interviews, and basically everything that you could ever want to find out about. Not only her, but also other key Tudor figures alive during Anne's life. I often use it as a jump-off point during my research into not only the Anne episodes, but also the ones on Catherine of Aragon and the upcoming ones on Jane Seymour, as she has a fantastic wealth of contemporary quotes that are all reliably referenced. Professional historians, please take a note, as well as a useful bibliography. You can find it all at www.theambolinfiles.com. She's also written a number of books on Anne, including The Anne Boleyn Collection and The Fall of Anne Boleyn, A Countdown, both of which were bestsellers. You can find links to all of this, of course, in the show notes. As you'll soon hear, we had a fascinating discussion in a late-night recording a couple of weeks ago, and I started by asking what it was that first fascinated her with Anne Boleyn and motivated her to start The Anne Boleyn Files. Well, it's a bit of a long story. I've always been a history nerd. Um, history was one of my favourite subjects from, um, well, as far as I can remember. Um, I did a history project, um, I think, the last year of junior school, so when I was 11. Um, and I did it on Henry and his six wives. And that was my first experience with Tudor history. And I think I just couldn't believe that a king could have six wives. And the fact that he ended up executing two of them um, was just bizarre. And it just sort of piqued my interest. I thought, what a character. Um, You know, for an 11-year-old, that's really quite, you know, interesting stuff. Um, 
and Anne has always been my favourite of his um, wives. I, I don't know why. I think it was her story, the fact that she, you know, was executed. And um, I was always sort of told that there was something, you know, odd about what happened and that she was probably innocent. Um, but actually, the Amberlynn files grew out of a dream that I had, which sounds really weird and wacky. But I had a very vivid dream back in January 2009, and, and that's led me on this journey. Um, I have very vivid dreams. Most nights um, I sort of wake up telling my husband about these weird dreams I have. But this one was different in that um, I woke up knowing I had to do something about it. Um, in the dream, I was actually at Anne's execution. I was a member of the crowd of spectators. I can't remember who I was. Um, I can't remember any of the visual details, you know, what Anne looked like, anything like that. All I can remember is what I felt. That That's really vivid. I can still feel that today. It was the horror of knowing what I was about to watch, that this person that was going to be killed by this executioner was completely innocent and I just had this feeling that I had to do something um, I was completely panicked and I can remember in my dream opening my mouth to yell and to try and stop it but it was that kind of moment where you're so terrified that your mouth is just your mouth and your throat are just completely dry your tongue's like sandpaper and you open your mouth and no sound comes out at all and I just remember that complete horror of not being able to stop it and I can remember the executioner swinging the sword no visual details I could just remember that that was what was happening when I woke up and I woke up really really shaken by this but I can remember shaking my husband awake and saying, Tim, Tim, you've got to help me. I've got to set up a website called The Amberlynn Files. I'm going to research Anne's life and I'm going to write about her. And poor Tim just kind of agreed with me and just rolled over and went back to sleep. <laughs> but it was just so weird. The name, I knew the name of the website. I knew that that's what I was going to do. And I people say to me, oh, you know, perhaps you were really there. You know, it's, uh, you know, you're reincarnated or something. But I don't believe that at all. I think for me, I was, um, I was doing freelance writing at the time and I was ghostwriting all kinds of things that I wasn't interested in you know, for clients. I was writing about things they wanted me to write about. I was writing books and articles on a range of topics that, you know, didn't really thrill me. And I was a bit bored. And I think that this dream was just my brain's way of giving me some purpose and keeping me sane. Um, it was a way to combine, you know, my passions, um, you know, writing and history so it was just I think my brain putting me on the right path to you know doing something that I would enjoy so the Amberlynn Falls was born Tim uh, went with the flow and sort of set me up with a WordPress site and the aim of it was just simply to be um, a private diary of my research just you know a, a blog that yes it was public but I didn't expect anyone to find it it was just for me to just diarise my research, just read a book and see what happens from there, you know, to, to put what I found out there. And then people started finding me and people started leaving comments and it just grew into this kind of community. 
of people giving me feedback and eventually a community of Tudor history lovers. So, and then it went crazy and I was having sort of thousands of hits and yeah, it just grew from there, but it started as just a way of keeping me sane and it's grown into something that's allowed me to do something I love full time now. Well, you know, I don't do any writing for anybody else. It's all, all for me now. Well, that's a fantastic story. I haven't got such a uh, such a wonderful dream sequence start to my story, but I mean, it's. I think so many of us start out just trying something that we want to do and an interest, and it suddenly we sort of think, oh, you know, whatever, and then suddenly something makes us go. Yeah, uh, and makes something makes us start, and it it's you know it's it's scary to start, and it's been going now for for so long. It's been going for what eight years now. Yep, I started. Yeah, the dream was in January, the end of January 2009, and I think I did my first post on the 17th of February 2009. So just just had the yeah the eight, eighth birthday. Because I, I mean I've been I've been using your website a lot um, during my mm. research for Anne, just because you, because there's such a wealth of information on there. I think I started there because you have a list on there of all the books, uh, all, all the sort of scholarship yeah. that's been written and your sort of views on, on that. And that, that was really useful for me for narrowing down what I was going to read, you know, which people to focus on, you know, the, you know, the Ives book, the D.W. Bernard book, and you know, David Stuck and all, the, all mm-hmm. those people. If I got found myself getting stuck on a particular section that I was writing about... Um, you always there's, there's always a quote. I was always if I need to find a quote, you you're very good at attributing your sources. I wish professional historians or so-called professional historians would be as good at attributing quotes as you are. Oh, you. Are. Well, my my reason for doing that is because I've been very frustrated with you know certain books that I've read, and you know you get to um, you know the historian's viewpoint, and you think, well, why on earth? Are they saying that? Why Why do they think that? And then someone like Eric Ives, you know, he's got a little reference saying, you know, exactly what he's basing that viewpoint on. And you can turn to the notes section and, you know, you've got the full reference and then you can go and check it for yourself and see if you interpret it the same way. But there are some other authors out there and you just think, I really haven't got a clue how you came to that conclusion. You haven't referenced it, so I can't. I can't go on this journey to see how, you know, what my interpretation would be. Or even most, even like the most frustrating thing for me is when they quote something and don't attribute it. I find um, Alison Weir is particularly, her books are really good, but she's really annoying. She doesn't always attribute all her quotes. And I find that incredibly annoying. Yes, you you end up having to sort of type it into Google and, and hoping that, you know, someone has quoted it somewhere else and, you know, and then you go on this journey. Yeah, that's what I do most days, really, is trying to figure out, you know, sources. Google Scholar's got me out of a lot of these, uh, lots yeah. of these jams. Yes. So, um, so yeah, I'm, you've been talking about her for eight years. I've been talking about her now for about, for about a month and a half, five episodes, four main ones, and then one on, um, uh, special on, on the, mm. the love letters. And I, I guess this one as well. Why, why are we still talking about her? I mean, she was a queen, it was only queen for three years. She was one of six. So she has plenty of competition, mm. even within her sort of fellow wives of one man. What, why are we still so obsessed by the, by Anne Boleyn? I, by Anne Boleyn? Oh, for me, it's, I don't want to demean her by reducing her to sort of being only a victim when, you know, there is so so much more to her than that. But 
but for me it is the tragedy of her story i mean the rise and fall you know she she came from sort of nowhere i mean she was people that say she was a social climber and she was common and and that, that you know that's not true you know her family were an important family and her father was a royal favorite before her and mary got involved with the king at all you know they they were she came from a prestigious family but you know she rose so quickly henry noticed her and then he wooed her and then she came to be queen from being a lady in waiting and then she was queen for only three years and then there was this dramatic fall and the fact that you know she suffered such an awful miscarriage of justice that you know it didn't just kill her it killed her brother and you know the the other men you know four of their friends as well and it had such a major impact all those families that suffered the the loss you know, the, of of these men. And I think also the fact that she, although she was only a queen consort for three years, she had such a major impact on English history. I mean, here was something that was unprecedented, you know, the execution of an anointed queen on trumped-up charges. And so for me, it's just the, the, the drama of it and the horror of what happened but I think, you know, talking to, you know, I, I often ask this question, you know, on social media to see what, why other people are so drawn to her. And I mean, some people actually sort of um, see her as a role model or can, you know, relate to her in some way. And I think they see her as being a bit like, you know, a modern woman in some respects because, you know, she stood up to Henry. She rebuffed him at the start. Um, you know, we can tell from the love letters that he really, you know, he had to go after her. She retreated and he chased her. And so you, you've got that, you know, she rebuffed him and then finally sort of gave in to him. And then when she was committed to that relationship and, you know, hit the great matter and him wanting to make her his queen, you know, she fought tooth and nail for that. She did everything she could to support him in that, you know, to get the crown that he'd promised her. She seems to come across as outspoken, um, someone that had a bit of a temper. Um, she wasn't your typical kind of submissive, you know, Tudor wife. She got involved, you know, in Henry's building projects. They discussed theology. I think, you know, there was a bit of um, sort of a meeting of minds there. She got involved in proposals for poor relief. She spoke out against the dissolution of the monasteries. You know, she was a very, very strong woman who was ultimately brought down by her enemies, whether you see that enemy as being her husband or Thomas Cromwell or factions or, you know, or a bit of, you know, a combination. So I think the drama of her story, the fact that she seems to be this kind of woman that we can relate to, she wasn't perfect, she had a temper, her relationship with Henry was based on love, not diplomacy. You know, their relationship was up and down. One minute they'd be arguing, the next minute they'd be all lovey-dovey. I think it's that. She, she comes across as very human. Yeah, I think you're right when you sort of talk about her as being someone you can very much relate to. I think she's a queen very much of the yeah. now. And I, you see, I, I think I read an article, I can't remember who it was from, uh, sort of asking, is Anne Boleyn a feminist? And the answer mm. to that question is no, obviously. Um, talking about feminism outside of, a, I think, a 20th century context mm. is somewhat problematic. But you can see 
I think it's so difficult when you look in the past to really be able to relate to people. They're so different, and, and culture was different, and people acted in different ways. And so we look at people like Catherine of Aragon or Jane Seymour, it's sometimes harder to see them as someone who you might meet in the street now or someone who yeah. you might see on the news. And then you see Anne Boleyn and, you know, the the intelligent, the, I hate the word feisty, it's very gendered, but that sort of strong mm-hmm. character. Uh, and I think you're right in the fact that the flaws also get you in. And, you know, like all great rock stars, she died yeah. young in her prime, yeah. I guess. I mean, what gets me is the speed of the fall. That That's what fascinated me and what got me really excited about covering her is is that you know she spent seven years getting getting to the top and she was brought down in depending on when you want to say it started but about mid from about mid-march 1536 till maybe maybe february and then she was dead in may and and this this for no a queen never been executed before so they were kind of making this all up on the fly and it was done so quickly the coup was so desperately done if it if it was a coup bringing her down was done so quickly and with so little remorse that it i just find it fascinating that it, yeah and the fact that you know that her story sort of you know it, it it ends you know on may the 19th and then the next day henry the eighth and jane seymour are getting betrothed and they're married you know at the end of the month he's just moved on completely it's just dramatic <laughs> And then, you know, the, the questions about religious reform, which I'm sure we'll talk about uh, a little bit later. And and let's not mm. forget her daughter as well, becoming one of our, if not our most famous queens and seemingly having a, a, a very strong connection to her mother, yeah. despite the fact that she barely knew her. I mean, she, mothers didn't nurse their children. She wouldn't have seen her that much in the two or so years that she was alive. And yet you, you see all these sort of Protestant people sort of t- telling Elizabeth these wonderful stories about Anne, which are really, really fascinating to read. Yeah, this is something that I've, I've been sort of looking at, you know, Anne's involvement with Elizabeth, because, yeah, Alison Weir has come up with this idea that um, Anne did not bond with Elizabeth because she was so disappointed, you know, that Elizabeth um, was a girl. And I just, I can't see that. I can't see the evidence for that because, you know, queen consorts were not meant to be, you know, close to their children. You know, the children were set up really early with their own households and brought up away from court. But, you know, we have records of Anne and Henry visiting Elizabeth. We know that Henry and Anne sent instructions to Lady Bryan about weaning, you know, Elizabeth. And we know from the expenses of of um, like William Locke, the mercer, was, who was making things for Anne and Elizabeth. We know that Anne ordered beautiful fabrics and ribbons and that for baby Elizabeth and was very involved in, you know, making sure that her daughter looked the part. And then you've got that the weird meeting with Matthew Parker, um, you know, Anne's chaplain a few days before Anne was arrested. And, you know, we don't know what was said and why Anne met with him, but we know it was enough for him later. Even though he was ill, he'd had an accident and he really didn't want to be first Archbishop of Canterbury. He really didn't want it. He didn't want that position, but he did it, he said, because of a promise that he'd made to Anne Boleyn. And you kind of think, well, what, did she know that something was going to happen? Did she ask him to keep an eye on Elizabeth, her daughter? It's 
it's a weird one, but I think that Anne did everything she could for Elizabeth. I don't think there was any lack of bonding. And I think Elizabeth then was lucky in her household to be surrounded by Berlin relatives who she could have talked to about her mother. I mean, we don't know, you know, whether she grilled them about her mother, but the fact that she grew up with Berlin relatives in her household, it would have been easy for her to find out about her mother. One of the biggest problems I find with in history is people, even at university, got sort of straight with some of my lecturers who who try and impose contemporary values on on the past. And to talk about twentieth century motherhood and sixteenth century motherhood are just yeah completely separate. I mean, if you look at uh, compare, I would compare well Anne and Elizabeth to say Catherine of Aragon and Mary. Mary was sent away so young; you know, they wouldn't have spent much time together when she was young. You know raised in different households, nursed by by attendants. Then she was sent yeah. off to Wales for a long time. And then they were kept separate. But they still they had this incredible, mm. powerful bond. And you can still develop these incredible bonds between um, mother and daughter, but not in the way that we would expect now. I mean, we would, we would call her an absentee mother now. We'd call her a negligent if it happened now. There's even conflicting reports as to how disappointed they were that she was a daughter. She she was a girl. I mean, they weren't wild about it. But initially, at least, it seems to be that, although some some say that Henry was you know furious and, and angry, some also say that he was very happy that Anne survived one and 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 there was and there was a healthy birth. I think it's later, maybe when there were a few more more failed pregnancies when when things got bad. Yeah, I haven't seen any evidence to show that they were really bitterly disappointed or angry. I mean, they were expecting a boy. They had to change um, the announcement. Um, That doesn't mean they were disappointed. They just thought that they were going to have a son. Um, Celebratory jousts got cancelled. That was the norm. Having a daughter wasn't a big thing that was that was celebrated um it was the birth of a boy that was celebrated with joust so that was completely normal for things to be more low low key but there were proclamations and you know there was the big lavish christenings so i don't think there's any sign of any anger or bitterness or disappointment just the fact that they really thought you know that anne was carrying a boy a lot of my the earlier queens that i covered question mark we start big question marks on the of the number of children they had and that's mainly because people didn't tend to note girls so we know all the sons they had even the stillbirth but i know with william the conqueror for example that there might be a daughter who lived i think she's a nun we're not entirely sure it was his daughter or not because or might be the same daughter someone else like their whole life gets lost because people didn't mm-hmm. bother to write it down and that's at a time when people monks were fairly good at writing stuff down i mean the 16th century is much better reported than the 11th female births were not seen in the as being as important but they you know they were still useful and it was a sign that elizabeth's birth was a sign that anne you know after catherine had had one successful pregnancy in seven and it was mm. i think mary was the fourth or fifth this was the first yes. one and she was healthy you know at worst a temporary setback at scene at the time yeah yeah i think it was a success you know, that it showed that, uh, you know, Anne could get pregnant quickly, she could carry to full term, and, you know, the baby was healthy. And I think Henry delighted in his daughter. So, yeah, I, I think her birth was a success. I don't think as uh, you know, I don't think they were disappointed. And I certainly don't think that, you know, Anne was, you know, disappointed and therefore didn't bond. So I can't, I can't see 
see the evidence for that. So moving on a little bit, in my uh, first episode of Amberlynn, I sort of started the thing with lots of little clips from the various actresses over the years who've played Anne Boleyn. So you've had, and some you know amazing names, Natalie Dormer, Claire Foy, Helena Bonham Carter. Well, which one is your favourite, would you say? And if, if, if the answer is different, which one do you think is the, the truest, the truest mm, actor? That's, that's a tough one. I, I, there's a kind of tie between Natalie Dormer in The Tudors and Genevieve Bujol in, um, you know, Anne of the Thousand Days. Um, both sort of very different Anne's, um, you know, both different, you know, series versus a movie. But I think both of them were able to convey Anne's strength of character I mean, what people describe as being feisty, you know, um, contrasted with her vulnerability. I mean, Natalie Dormer, I thought, in the Tudors was really good at that. Um, You saw this really strong character. But then in season two, you know, at the end, you just saw, I mean, the, the, the scene where, you know, her brother and the men, they're being executed and she's in that cell. I mean, obviously she wasn't in a cell, really. She was in, you know, lovely apartments. But, you know, her heartbreak as she realises what, what's happened. I mean, a fantastic scene. Uh, so I liked that, the the strength of character and the vulnerability. And I know it never happens, but that scene in the tower with uh, Genevieve Bujol you know, Richard Burton as Henry comes to visit her and, you know, she's been counting the days that she's, you know, being queen and, and you know, that speech about, you know, how her daughter, you know, her blood will, you know, become queen. Uh, it's an amazing performance. And so I think there are parts of the Anne's that they played that I love. It's hard to describe, but they also play Anne's that, you know, that the viewer can sort of dislike parts of her character but you also, you can't help but sort of fall for her and root for her in the end. You know, that Natalie Dormer's Anne is very spiteful at times, a really awful character at times, but by the end of it, you're still rooting for her and hoping that she's not going to get executed, even though, you know, you know there's no hope. The one I really didn't like was Natalie Portman in The Other Berlin Girl, but I think that's probably more down to this storyline rather than her acting. I mean, I just felt in the end she was a sort of caricature, really. You know, she's just mean Anne who's willing to sell her soul to the devil if she gets what she wants, contrasted to that angelic doormat Mary Boleyn, whose true love is snatched from her by Anne and you know, Anne even tries to sort of, you know, take her son from her, you know, and it's just baddie Anne versus Angelic Mary. So I just found that, you know, they were just caricatures in the movie and I really didn't like it. Um, Claire Foy, I loved her in The Crown um, as Elizabeth II, but she thoroughly annoyed me as Anne Boleyn in Wolf Hall. And again, I don't think it's her, it's more the Anne, the character of Anne. Um, I mean, in the books, Wolf Hall and, um, you know, Bring Up the Bodies, I, I found the characters very... I, I'm not a fan of those books. I know there are people that think they're masterful sort of pieces of literature, but for me, I just... I, I didn't... I have to have a character to root for in a book. I have to... I have to find a character that I can really connect with. And I came out of those books just hating everyone, even Cromwell. Um, everyone was very two-dimensional and unlikable. And 
so I couldn't take to the Anne of those books and it just annoyed me in in the TV program that you know if you're going to give Anne a French accent then give her a French accent you know make her sort of French in style completely don't have her just slipping into a French accent when she's talking to Cromwell and calling him Cromwell you know it just I just found it so annoying I could have thrown things at the TV <laughs> I think the first I, the first portrayal of Anne that I can remember seeing was actually in um I think it was a BBC miniseries done few many many years ago, and had Ray Winston. I think about two thousand something like that. Mm. And and I'm trying to remember something that happened about seventeen years ago because I haven't really seen it since. Um, but I, I there's a really horrible scene that still stayed with me. Yeah, it's a it's a, a rape scene essentially with. Um, Henry, when Henry so angry with her for miscarrying, not giving a son that he that he rapes her, and it's a it's a really horrific horrific scene. Uh, Ray Winston, it's it, that series is not not kind on. I think I gave up on that because of uh, his accent. <laughs> Isn't he a Cockney, Henry the Eighth? <laughs> yeah, oh, and it was Ray Winston. Like Ray Winston didn't didn't make an attempt, but I. I Ray yeah. Winston was playing Ray Winston as Henry. Um, uh, I think they decided, you know, let, let Ray be Ray. But I like. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I remember liking Helen of Oton Carter and, the, and quite young when I saw it, but uh, she definitely played the, the sort of uh, standing up to... Mm-hmm. Standing up to power, kind of Anne, uh, and I mean, I'm a massive fan of Natalie Dormer. I'm not massive fan of the Tudors, I have to say, but I, I didn't. I watched YouTube, yeah. lots of sort of YouTubes of her doing it, and I love the scene um, mm. when she's taken to the tower, and she's got this. She's trying to be Anne Boleyn, you know. She's trying to be, uh, you know, st- you know, to, to yeah. play it right, to be this strong character. And then she, keep, mm. you know, she she breaks every now and again. The facade, you know, the curtain drops, and 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 she's sort of pleading and with the, the men who take her, and then with um, uh, mm. with Kingston, the constable of the tower, and then it, it's it's she's absolutely wonderful. I, I love I love Natalie Dormer. Um, yes, me big, too. I'm a big Game of Thrones <laughs> fan, uh, as as my listeners will know. I didn't I did a did a special on that mainly so I can talk about uh, her Marjorie Tyrell. Um, I think there are definite similarities in Marjorie and. And Anne, uh, I think there's there's no. I don't think it's a shock that they cast mm. in that role. She's she's absolutely brilliant, um, and I, I agree. 
she brings this great I, I unfortunately I haven't seen Anne of a Thousand Days I have mm. again seen clips and she's uh, Jean-Vier Bajol is, is it's um it's a very different Anne from the one we tend to get these days probably because it was yes. from quite a long time ago so it's a kind of different perspective on her she definitely plays a I'd say a more sort of regal a more aloof mm. Anne but she has a she has a presence that other Annes don't have when she plays it Especially again, and, and that's particularly impressive when he's up against, she's up against Richard Burton, who's I'm not sure I can mm. think of a man who I'd rather play Henry in than Richard Burton. He's a he's a wonderful, wonderful actor. But I, I agree. I think I think I do think that Natalie Dormer, from what I've seen, is 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 the truest portrayal. I do. The one thing I like about Natalie Portman in the Other Berlin Girl is she does, and this is I think because although the characterization I agree isn't great, but she is a wonderful actress. She does yeah. have she has a great presence. On, on screen, there's um, the scene when um, Henry first notices her as a, a feast at court, and you know, the, the contrived scene where you know he uh, he catches her eye and and she essentially starts her mm. her entrapment of him, and she sort of walks up, you know, talking up his masculinity and talking down the French king at the same time. But uh, I'm not a I'm not a huge Philippa Gregory fan myself, I have to say, and. Uh, but the you know the other Berlin girls that are work of historical fiction are not expecting it to be perfect history. But I I, I agree. I, it's not her. It's not the best portrayal of her. I don't think. Best no, portrayal. no, I agree. So uh, we've talked a little bit about uh, Anne. You know, she had she had three years on the throne. Although I think you can possibly argue that the few years leading up to that, when she was basically queen in all but name, she you know, she was doing things even then. But would you view her as a successful queen? Um, she did. She managed to squeeze an awful lot into those three years. Other than the, because you very easily get lost in this sort of uh, the rise and fall narrative. You know, the talking about her relationship with her husband, her clashes with Cromwell, her clashes with Catherine of Aragon. And I think you've, as I keep saying, you. Of course, I mean you, as in like the general you. It's very easy to forget that she, you know, she was a queen of England, and queens of England were expected to do things, and she can be measured as a queen against other people, not not least her fellow wives of Henry. Do you think she was successful? And and what kind of an impact, purely on those terms, do you think that she's left today? Well, I mean, you can't compare her to, uh, you know, Queen Regnant. I mean, she was a queen consort, so she lacked, you know, the power to um, sort of have an impact that a monarch would have. You know, Henry was was the leader; he was in charge. But I do think she left, um, you know, a, a, a mark on England. I mean, in her short time as queen consort, you know, she did her duty. We we can see that she, um, you know, the, the duty of a queen in, in those days, you know, the medieval and Tudor queen was as a mediator, you know, as an intercessor. They were supposed to be like, you know, the Virgin Mary was for Catholics, you know, um, as the sort of go-between between them and God. You know, she was, this queen was meant to be the intercessor between the people and the king. And she definitely did that. Um, we can see her, um, you know, she she furthered the cause of, you know, religious reform by acting as a patron to evangelical men. She, um, you know, petitioners went to her to see if she could help them, you know, with grants and things. So she was this mediator. She was this patron. And, I mean, she played a major part in the Reformation in sort of... Uh, 
but well, I think Eric Hives, I've got this quote here, you know, that she played a major part in pushing Henry into asserting his headship of the church. You know, she shared books with him, um, you know, for how he should, you know, be, get round the Pope. Um, she used her position to promote poor relief and charity. Um, you have her, as I said, acting as a patron to religious reformers, but also acting as a patron to people like Hans Holbein, um, you know, she commissioned stuff off him, so she was also a patron of the arts. Um, I think what she failed at, through no fault of her own, was her duty of providing the king with a son and heir and a spare. You know, she provided him with Elizabeth, who obviously has gone down in history as one of the greatest monarchs of England. But she didn't, you know, she let Henry down through no fault of her own by not providing him with the son. But during the three years that she was queen, she we have records of there being three pregnancies. So she tried her, her hardest to do that. So I think I think she had a lasting impact. I think I don't think Henry would have broken with the church when he did. I mean, perhaps eventually he would have, but there would have been you know no break with rome when there was um the religious changes that happened during henry's reign you know were built on by elizabeth with elizabeth's religious settlement there were things that happened in parliament that you know have had you know a lasting impact on england constitutional parliament so i think even though she only had a three-year tenure and she was only a queen consort i think she did have a huge huge impact on england I mean, it's very difficult to know precisely where her her impact starts and stops and, and what was the work of others. I mean, I, I, I sometimes think that Henry's sometimes portrayed as this great tyrant, then also this man who doesn't know his, as this weak-willed person who who is you know, so thoroughly influenced by the people around him, be it Anne or, or Catherine or, or any of his wives or Cromwell or Wolsey, that... You know that he's 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 seen as almost this sort of person who's just does the last thing he was told, and so I think I very much agree that Anne was uh, was very mm-hmm. it was instrumental in everything that happened. Um, in in I, I I agree with you in in definitely in the sense that she sort of pushed him. No, he wasn't a puppet. He, she didn't make him do all this stuff. You know, it, it, she wasn't the mastermind of it all. Um, I think I, I, in one of my episodes, described you know they they were expecting this to be a quick divorce, uh, and it's a quick divorce that lasted seven years. They were kind of making things up on the fly all the time, and and Henry mm-hmm. was not a patient man, uh, not at all. And I think Anne was very good at, at stiffening his resolve and 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 pointing him in the right direction. But, but Henry was nothing if not a, a strong character as well. I think you can describe as many things, but I think weak-willed is not one of them. And I think that was why, when they did clash, yeah, all of his other wives, I think, knew mm-hmm. when to just knuckle under, you know, and just say, you know, yes, your majesty. Uh, whereas Anne, because I think she'd been treated by Henry as an equal for such a long time when they were courting, she didn't realise that when she became queen, things were supposed to change. You know, the chase was over. That didn't help her, and and she, and she didn't know her place. I mean, it sounds a horrible thing to say, and I'm not saying that it's true, but you know, she didn't know. 
she didn't play the role as of queen as well as some other people because unfortunately you know, the role of queen at the time was to was to knuckle under if you take out childbirth which of course wasn't her fault you would say that was possibly her only failing but it's a very understandable failing because that is her personality it's what attracted henry to her in part in the first place i love that account when you know henry's gone to see catherine and catherine has given him you know a real ear bashing and then he goes to anne looking for sympathy um you know because catherine of aragon is not playing ball and and anne is furious at him for for letting catherine have the upper hand and so she sort of lays into him as well (laughs) yeah (laughs) I love that one. I love it. I think, I think yeah, that's Chapuis. Yeah, just kind of feel a bit sorry for him. But yeah, I don't think he was anyone's puppet. And I think it's kind of dangerous to kind of give Anne sort of too much power because at the end of the day, she was only queen consort. But she, I think, I can't. you can't say she was a failure as queen consort. I read somewhere someone's thesis in which they said she was a complete failure. And I think, well, no, she she was a mediator. She she did her job. She listened to people. She she influenced um, you know the rise of various people. And she she did what was expected. The only thing that she failed at was was providing him with a prince. It's a shame that Henry had no idea what his daughter would be, but there you go. So, so moving, uh, segueing on a little bit from that. So, you've already said you've already gone on record on this, saying that mm-hmm. you very much believe that she was framed. You, you're not falling in the Bernardian school no. of well, maybe she had something to do with it. Uh, maybe she wasn't. Maybe she was innocent. So, you you definitely see her as 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 not having done the crimes for which she was accused of. Um, so where do you stand on her fall? We sort of mm-hmm. talk, alluded to, to it a bit. There are some people who very much see it as, as it was all Cromwell or it was all Henry being awful because, you know, he wanted the son, he was desperate for the son, she didn't provide him the son, therefore he had to go. Then some say, well, it might have been, you know, this, these court factions that did all sorts of things. I, I think I, I fell very much on, on a, mm-hmm. on the Cromwell side of the, side of the argument uh, in my episode because I think, Mm-hmm. Largely because of how quickly it happened, it can, I think it, it possibly can only be seen as as being driven by one very desperate man. But I'm interested to hear, to hear what you think. Well, I think the one desperate man for me is Henry VIII. Um, I don't blame Cromwell. Obviously, opinions are divided, and you can back up, you know, anyone. You can back up the faction argument. You can back up the Cromwell argument. You can back up Henry VIII argument. We're never going to know. But, but for me, I lay the blame at the feet of Henry VIII. I think um, Anne was in a very difficult position, as you've alluded to, you know, being Henry VIII's queen consort, because she wasn't their marriage. It wasn't a diplomatic match um she didn't have powerful royal family behind her to protect her she'd set a precedent you know by being um a lady in waiting who'd risen to be queen and henry had married her for love or you know as some people would say lust um i think that put her in a very vulnerable position because she somehow had to keep henry's interest um she had to keep him in love with her attracted to her um and that you know she felt threatened with you know by his dalliances with others 
um, especially as she hadn't been able to provide him with a son. She she had to keep him interested um, by being the person that he'd fallen in love with, this strong woman, um, but also somehow be the perfect you know, queen consort who was supposed to be submissive to him as well. You know, that's a real conundrum. How can you be both people? How can you be the person he fell in love with? and change to this more submissive sort of perhaps Catherine of Aragon style queen and still keep his interest. I think that put her in a vulnerable position. And I think Henry, you know, he'd come to believe that his first marriage was cursed because it was contrary to God's law due to his, uh, you know, so-called incestuous union with Catherine because she'd been, you know, his brother's widow. And he hadn't had a surviving son because of that. And now here was Anne failing failing him you know she hadn't given him a son either there must be something wrong and and perhaps you know was he thinking oh it was down to him you know sleeping with her sister at some point um i think he started to think that there was something wrong i think it was also a blow to his ego to his manhood that you know Anne hadn't given him a son and people were sort of questioning this I think it was humiliating he turned the country upside down for this woman he'd got rid of Catherine of Aragon he'd had her as a thorn in his side you know the whole time till she died in January 1536 he'd you know his daughter was being a pain um, his you know some of his people some of his courtiers you know weren't happy with him um, you know, he turned his country upside down for this woman. Um, she was arguing with his right-hand man, Cromwell. She was outspoken. She was unpopular with some of his courtiers. And there was this idea that she also might be sort of ridiculing him behind his back, you know, talking perhaps about his lack of prowess. And and, that. and I think we, we know that Henry just managed to somehow switch off, switch between love and hate. He managed to switch off love if he felt that someone had let him down in any way. I mean, you think of like Thomas More, who was a real father figure to him. But, you know, Thomas More knew what Henry was capable of. I mean, I think there's that quote about, you know, if he could have a castle in France, then my head would be off. You know, he knew that Henry could go from being this loving man to, you know, if, if it suited him, then you were gone. And you look at how he treated Catherine of Aragon and Mary, you look at the Carthusian monks who, you know, some of them he'd, he'd been close to and, you know, they were his favourite order, that he was close to them and yet he felt betrayed by them because they didn't sign the oath, you know, accepting him as head of the church. And he was vile, you know, he, these were men of God who were executed in the most awful ways as traitors or they were starved to death or, you know, in chains and, oh, just awful. And he just seems to be able to flip a switch. Once you've let him down in any way, he's just able to switch from love or respect to complete hate. And I think that happened with Anne. And then you've also got this seemingly meek, mild, pretty lady-in-waiting whispering in your ear about how unpopular your wife is, how everyone thinks your marriage is wrong, and, and that kind of justifies your feelings and justifies your actions. So for me, it's about love turning to hate. Anne had to go so that Jane could take her place and give the king the son he needed. For me, 
that's what it boils down to. And I, I think the fact that Henry doesn't show, he doesn't seem to show any shock by the events of May 1536. He's not, he doesn't seem to be shocked by her arrest. There's no kind of, you know, there's no bursting into tears in front of his privy council, weeping, you know, as he did with Catherine Howard. Um, when he found out she wasn't all she was cracked up to be. He's dancing with ladies at night while his wife's in the tower. He's planning his marriage to Jane while his wife's in the tower. Um, I think all of that shows that he really didn't believe what, you know, what Anne had been charged with. I think it was all down to him. I think it's John Schofield in his um, biography of Cromwell talks about if, if it was all down to Cromwell, then the case against Anne and the men would have been more watertight than it was. It actually would have made sense. Um, you know, Eric Ives does a great job in his biography of, of pulling the charges apart and just showing how impossible they were. Anne wasn't even in those places and the men weren't either. They just make no sense. If it was all down to Cromwell with his amazing legal mind, the charges, everything would have made sense. And I think also the you know, the charges of the charge of incest is just so awful that I think that is kind of Henry's stamp on it all. He just wanted to completely annihilate her. You know, the black and the Berlin name forever, really, by by throwing that one in. And I think that's a very, very personal charge. So, but that's just my opinion, and, and you can argue for Cromwell as well. And I think there was this kind of this idea of the perfect storm as well. There are lots of factors that came into play, you know, with with the <laughs> Catholic Conservatives as well. And so there was this perfect storm as well. Lots of factors, but for me, Henry has to take the responsibility. I mean, I think my my view it, it's similar, although I do I do throw a lot more of the blame at Cromwell, but I think. In a sense, you're right in that Henry is the man. I mean, he didn't have absolute power. Tudor monarchs didn't have ab- weren't absolute monarchs in in the sense that they would be in in, in France and Spain. But the, you know, it was his decision um, whether whether you blame factions, whether you blame Cromwell, whether you blame anyone. Um, at the in the end of the day, he chose to believe. I mean, even if, even if she, mm. even if you believe the the Bernard argument that. She may have, she may have had these affairs. Even he admits yes. that the, the charges were so patently ludicrous and easily provably wrong. Um, that, you know, it's, he, the, the, he made this decision. Whether he was talked into it by someone mm. else, by a lot of other people, be it Seymour's conservatives, Cromwell. In the end of the day, he, he decides to put his stamp on this. On this decision, and you know, queens had, had yeah. rebelled before. I mean, queens had done an awful lot worse than Anne had before. I mean, Eleanor of Aquitaine is mm. is, is a great example. She actually rebelled against against her husband and nearly brought the whole yes. thing down. And she was only imprisoned. Now, they, it was different back in the uh, earlier Middle Ages. Nobles weren't executed. It's actually interesting. The more modern we get in, mm. in history, the more likely you are to get killed for something uh it's really a sort of um from the wars of the roses onwards when when we start seeing nobles losing their heads on a fairly frequent basis before that you know king john was seen as an absolute tyrant because he executed a couple of nobles 
Um, I mean, Henry would, if you throw Henry into the 13th century and he, he would be seen as this absolute monster. He does seem to turn on a dime. It doesn't seem to, he, he doesn't see grey. He, he sees things in black and white. He, he, the, the, you, you talk about Thomas More. I, I was thinking of when you were talking mm-hmm. about that, of, of uh, what, ha- what happened to Thomas Cromwell. How, you know, he, he was, you know, he was blamed for the, you know, horrible embarrassment that Henry felt of the marriage of Anne of Cleves. And then, you know, he executes him, mm. you know, out of anger and then seemingly completely regrets it because say what you like about Cromwell. Uh, he's, uh, if you want someone to run things for you and you're not too, if you don't have too many scruples, you probably want him. And of all the things to bring Cromwell down, it was a strange one that finally did. Um, and it, it does seem curious to me that, you know, it happens so quickly and Henry seems to have made a decision at some point. It seems to have happened almost quite instantly, depending on, on it, lots of historians have argued when he finally turned on Anne, but it seems to have been as soon as he decided, you know, he, he she was literally dead to him. Yeah. He just leapt to switch. That was, yeah, that was that. I, I think he, I think she had, to go in a very final way by execution because I don't think he wanted to risk another Catherine of Aragon scenario you know she'd been you know a thorn in his side all the time that he was trying to marry Anne and he couldn't have have Anne in prison or you know banished from court or whatever in the wings you know stirring like you know he thought Catherine had I think that's why you know Anne had to go in the way that she did and of course she was a lot easier to get rid of and you know Catherine would have been the very things that attracted his father when he married his uh, Prince Arthur and then to to Henry when he married her uh, beginning of his reign you know these great imperial connections that she had this great noble family you know seemingly every every single nobleman major important moment in Europe seems to have been a cousin or an, or something of Catherine. Whereas Anne, he wasn't going to make too many enemies by executing Anne, particularly after you know, the, the smear campaign, you know, the complete, total destruction of her name. No. Um, but I mean, if, if that had been done, you know, there's no way he could have done that to Catherine. There's no, there's no, there's no uh, surprise that the two yes. executed queens were were both were English. They weren't foreign. You couldn't execute a foreign uh, mm. a foreign princess. It would mean it would it would be a terrible breach of protocol. Yes, no there was no one to fight for Anne, was there, or for Catherine Howard either. it wasn't gonna cause wars or anything. And in the end you know, the the person who passed sentence on Anne was her uncle. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's it's such a it is a tragic story, but, and but again, you know, she Anne Anne was no one's victim, even though she was she did suffer this mm. this horrible this horrible fate, almost almost unique, uh, other than Catherine, queens of England, queens of Britain that would have be have pretty poor times of it, but Anne probably had the worst along with Catherine Howard of of them all by uh, through this horrible full execution through. Mm. Pretty, yeah. Well, you, uh, what we would argue, no fault of her own. <laughs> well, we, we've been talking for a little while now, so I just want to thank you very much for coming on the show. And I was wondering uh, what, uh, if you wanted to plug any of the things you're doing at the moment. Well, I've been uh, I've been working uh, on a book for a few years now um, called "The Fall of Catherine Howard: A Countdown," 
which um, I did it for Anne. I, I did the Fall of Anne Boleyn, a countdown, sort of, you know, looking at Anne's fall step by step and, you know, researching that and then writing the, the day by day sort of account of Anne's fall, you know, made me, I don't know, the impact of how fast it sort of happened, it, it just sort of really stayed with me. So I wanted to do the same with Catherine Howard, do it sort of day by day, just to see how everything sort of, you know, conspired against her really and just the, the drama of how quickly that happened as well not in the same way as Anne but but yeah I, I want to write that I've been working on it for a few years and had to keep putting it on the back burner because of uh, you know other projects like um, you know running the Amberlynn Files and also the Chitty and that but I'm I'm aiming to get back to that the initial sort of research is all done so it's, it's just going back to that and actually writing it um, another thing I've been working on is I've got together with a translator and we've been um, working on the, the poem by Lancelot de Carl, who was the secretary to the French ambassador at the time of Anne's fall. The poem that he did called On the Death of Anne Boleyn, which talks about Anne's rise and fall, but is all in 16th century French. Um, so I've been working on um, with a translator, getting that translated into English, uh, not a kind of direct word for word translation, but one in it that that still keeps the kind of the poetry, the style of it. And then I'm I'm going to sort of um, you know add bits about you know who he who he was, um, the context of the poem, how it's been used by people like G. W. Bernard, um, you know, to argue that Anne was guilty and where you know he was getting his information from. So an exploration of that poem. Um, also, I've been talking to Dimitri, um, who's a made global author, who's done some graphic novels, and I've been talking to him about the idea of doing an Anne Boleyn graphic novel. I don't know much about graphic novels at all, but he's a sort of whiz with that. I can tell Anne's story, but I can't, you know, illustrate it. So we've been talking about that, but that's just initial sort of thoughts at the moment. But otherwise, getting on with, you know, the Anne Boleyn files, I try to blog on there, uh, you know, regularly. And the Tudor Society as well. I sort of do talks and articles for that. And uh, supporting my fellow Made Global authors as well. So busy, busy. <laughs> Yeah, so that's quite. I mean, I I run a run a humble podcast, and and uh, that keeps me <laughs> keeps me busy enough. I can't imagine having quite that many projects. That's fantastic. Well, I like to be that busy. Me, if I'm not busy, I'm bored. <laughs> I, I I know exactly what you mean. Well, thank you very much for coming on on the show, and I'm sure we'll uh, keep an eye out for for those projects whenever uh, when well whenever they whenever they come to fruition. Yeah, and thank you for inviting me. It's whenever, uh, been a pleasure. I really uh, I like nothing they, better than to talk about Anne Boleyn. So this is has been lovely. That's all for today. I'd like to thank Claire again for coming on the show and sharing her views and expertise with us. As I said in the intro, you can find links to all her stuff in the show notes and I urge you all to check it all out. Next week, we will get started with Jane Seymour, Henry's third and some might argue greatest queen. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.